a large contingent of, uh, of unmarried people, either young single people or um, recently divorced people who have not been remarried or have chosen not to remarry. And so uh, I, I got a Facebook message from one of my friends here, and uh, he said, another teaching on marriage? And I said, trust me, this will be relevant to anybody. So if you are single and thinking about walking out uh, of the sanctuary right now, um, one, I will see you do that, and uh, which, is, which is unlike the video preacher. Um, but two, I promise it will be relevant. So uh, I, I did have a, a difficult time preparing this message. Um, and last night, it was kind of a crash and burn, and so I, I stayed up last night retweaking it. But um, as, I was, as I was studying one morning out on my patio, uh, Ethan woke up before anybody else in the house had, had woken up. Ethan is my four-year-old, and he came down out to the back patio and sat down, and, and uh, he grabbed his like cartoon Bible that he has and uh, was kind of imitating me, and uh, he asked for coffee, and so I... I gave him like sugar milk. And so uh, I took it as an opportunity to ask him a couple questions about marriage and just see what a four-year-old would say. And, um, and I, said, I said, Ethan, who, who are you going to marry when you grow up? And he sat there and he, and he thought about it. He said, well, I was going to marry you. <laughs> he said, but then I saw Chloe. <laughs> and Chloe is my daughter Kaylee's friend who lives on our cul-de-sac and we moved in just over here. So, so going after the older women I see already. So, um, but, uh, you know, I think that, I think that's an innocent, uh, response to some, uh, something that's actually a very difficult category, but I think all of us kind of fit into, uh, that category, meaning that, uh, this thing called marriage and these things called relationships are actually a little bit more difficult than we can sometimes think. Uh, we don't have a full understanding. Those of us who have, uh, who have grown up and become married, uh, we can't even stand up on a stage and say, hey, I'm an expert. So uh, if there was any other subject, we might be able to pull people up here and talk about your profession and your expertise. But uh, I found it very challenging, at least myself, to say, okay, what am I going to talk about for marriage. And so I feel like God gave me something that I want to dive into. Uh, and it'll take just a little bit. And I know you guys don't have the notes to follow along. And so I'll try to be clear. And the uh, verses will come up um, behind me here on the screen. We are having a, a little bit of difficulty with our screen. So if it, if it sketches out, um, they might just shut it off. But um, just just for some of you guys who haven't had an opportunity to sit across a coffee table with me or, or stand on the patio or sit down at one of those tables on the patio before or after service or throughout the week, uh, they wanted us as campus pastors to just give a brief introduction. And so um, I married Emily um, in 2001, so almost 12 years ago in September, and we now have four uh, amazing kids. We have Noah, who is eight, Kaylee is six, and Ethan, I mentioned before, is four, and we just had Reagan, who is four months old, but if you see him uh, with Emily uh, here, you might think that he's more like six months old. I, I changed his diaper yesterday and tried to put a onesie on him and realized that that onesie didn't fit anymore. So, um, but we have, we have a wonderful, wonderful family and a wonderful marriage. 
And I know that even just saying that, it might cause a little bit of a couple different reactions. And here's this. If somebody stands up and says, hey, I have an amazing marriage, you'll have one of three responses. And that, that is, is this. Uh, you could question right now because Emily is working in the nursery downstairs and not listening to what I'm saying. You could say, oh, okay, he has freedom to say what he wants and nobody could shout him down really. So uh, I could say, I have a great marriage, uh, but without Emily being able to be up on stage or uh, having a response from the crowd, you could say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because maybe you don't have a wonderful marriage. Maybe you're going through a rough spot uh, in, in your relationship right now. And so I think when somebody stands up, you might say, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's really true because if I don't have it. I don't know if anybody really does have it. A second response would be, hey, I'm jealous I wish I had that, but I'm stuck in this one relationship or I'm stuck in this one season where uh, maybe it's not working out or now you've moved beyond that and it didn't work out. And so you could respond and say, I either question that or I'm jealous. But maybe the third response that we should have as we interact with couples who do have amazing God-inspired marriages is that we could have the response and the reaction of being inspired. And so as we do that, I want you to be uh, given hope, but then also be inspired by the Word of God um, and not just what the world would say. I, I, as I was processing this, I actually uh, was sitting down very briefly with um, somebody who has, has quite a bit of influence, and you would categorize uh, them as a leader, and I was talking through about what am I going to share because I, I don't have uh, any devastating story in the context of those 12 years that I could say, hey, Emily and I walked through this and here are the A, B, C points in a poem to tell you how to get through a difficult time. And so I, I was kind of sharing this with, with this guy and, and saying, I'm, I'm just not sure exactly what I want to talk about yet. And he goes, oh man. Well, if you haven't gone through it, just wait. It'll come. <laughs> and I was like, you teach people that? <laughs> I, I just was, I, I was so, I was so dumbfounded that he was basically proclaiming something over my life that I was like, that's not what the Word of God says. I've been reading this a long time, and, and I, I, I see that it says that if we depart from the way of God, if we say, here's God's commandments, and this is the way that we should walk in it, and I willfully turn the other way, then I understand that I should have a just wait moment. It's coming to me. But if I'm pursuing God with all my heart in my own life and in my relationship and in my occupation and in everything that I do, then I shouldn't have somebody say, well, man, you've gone 12 years. That's pretty good, but man... I don't know, it's coming. That, you know, what should, buy, what should be my response? I should have picked a fight probably, right? Because, because here's, what, here's what Deuteronomy 28, 13 says. They might get it up on the screen. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. So is that in direct contact, con contrast to what that person said over me? So I don't, let, I don't let him proclaim something over my life, but I shouldn't let myself proclaim something over my life either, right? Because sometimes negative words flow a lot more freely than positive words. You don't have to have a whole lot of hope to speak negatively over your life, right? 
And so we're going to talk about that, actually. But uh, before I get into that, I want to talk to you about a verse that's found in Mark chapter 3. And I, I, I actually didn't have it in my message until I was driving here last night. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I was, I was praying for you guys and praying for the Saturday night service. And, and God just showed up in my car. And just, when I say that, I don't mean that he physically showed up in my car. I just mean that the presence of God came upon me and where I had doubt in the message that was be, to be delivered, I felt the power of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit rise up inside of me. And it was, it was with this verse that I had just been studying in my own private devotionals that wasn't really supposed to make it into this message. But let me read this. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So this is Jesus talking, and to give you a little bit of context, he is being accused by some of the religious leaders of that day that he's casting out demons in the name of Beelzebel. Basically, acting in a satanic force to cast out satanic forces. And I know that's just a little bit complicated, but he then responds to them and he says, a house divided cannot stand. And then he goes into this short parable where he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now what's interesting about this verse is that scholars have looked at this verse on two different angles. One angle would be this, that our enemy cannot come and take and steal from us until first he has bound us. Does that make sense? So we, in that scenario, would be the strong man. The, the enemy would do all that he can to get us roped to our seat, stuck in our station of life, bound up with maybe the sins or the cares or the concerns or the negative thoughts, we are kind of put at a standstill and then the enemy has access to our house, comes in and plunders our house and takes things from us that we have right to. But the other side that scholars would look at is that Jesus is actually speaking of the strong man being the enemy himself. And he says this if we understand it that way that we can't go into the enemy's house and plunder his goods until we have first bound him. But there's a promise there that if we do bind him, the enemy, the strong man, that then we can go into his house and take back that which he's stolen from us. So I came here today with fire in my bones saying this, that I think there's some of us in this house today that have been bound up, that are bound up, that are stuck in a station of life and they need to be loosed and unbound. So maybe that's you or maybe that's the person you're sitting next to or maybe that's your friend or maybe that's somebody you knew that came last night or somebody in one of the other campuses. But our charge then is this, that we loose ourselves that we loose our friends so that the enemy does not have any more access into our house, into our family, into our relationships, and into our spiritual possessions and heritage. Does that make sense? But then I also think that the charge from this verse to some of us in this house today is that we might not feel bound. Maybe we walked through a season of life where we were bound, but maybe coming into this place and experiencing the worship gives us just enough energy throughout the week to stay free. But 
we're operating in a realm where we've had some things stolen from us. And some of us have maybe become just a little bit content with not having those things. Relationships set right. Finances set in order. Our spirit man rising up inside of us and conquering our soul and our flesh. And so here's my charge today before we really get into this is that I want some of us to have the boldness and the courage to go into the strong man's house, the enemy's house, and say, I bind you in the name of Jesus and I've come back for that which you've taken from me. Can we do that today and this week and forever now and close out a marriage series and say, listen, I sit in a marriage where something's been stolen from me, but I have the right, says Jesus, to bind that strong man and let him sit there bound in a chair, helplessly watching me plunder his house. Can we do that? And then maybe some of us go a step beyond that and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and plunder souls from his house. Because some of us, it's like, okay, let's get all of our stuff and let's get all of our junk back in order. And, and then we can get set free and set in order. But then some of us have a call on our life to complete the Great Commission. And we say, you know what, I'm going to go to this country. I'm going to go to this city. I'm going to go to my in-law's house. I'm going to go to my brother's house. I'm going to go to my sister's house. And I'm going to rescue souls that have been stolen because the strong man came and bound them. Does that make sense? So, this is going a whole lot more better than than, uh, last night. So, um, then, okay, I'm going to read to you a bunch of scriptures. and, And these scriptures... Um, come from Genesis, and basically it's a Sunday school story that we've kind of reserved for um, the cartoon Bible or um, the, the felt boards or um, the things that we learned uh, when we were a kid, and so we kind of compartmentalize. You know that we take kind of the, we take the crucifixion story and we save it for Easter. We take the birth of Christ and we save it for Christmas, and sometimes we take the story of Adam and Eve and we save it just for little kids, right? So... I'm going to read to you a uh, bunch of scripture, but we can do that because this is church. So um, it'll come up. It'll come up on the screen behind me, and I use the English Standard Version. Uh, but if you have your own Bible, you can follow along. I'm going to read this fast and then um, talk through it. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-six through thirty. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion." Over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
Think of those words that I kind of slowed down on. Dominion. Subdue it. Dominion. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, fast forwarding a little bit. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So, two things real quick, and I'm going to dive into this and then get back into what it means for relationship, um, and specifically marriage. But this, um, I just want to point out two things. God gives man dominion over everything on the earth. So when we were talking about Mark chapter 3, verse 27, we're talking about spiritual things, but we also are talking about physical things. And we have the right to go and bind the strong man because, why? Because God gave us dominion. He didn't just make us like one of the other creatures and creation that he established on the face of the earth. He set us above and over that, and he gave us dominion. So God gives man dominion over everything on the earth. But number two, God gives the man the right and the responsibility to name things. This was never something that was revoked. God gave this right and this responsibility to Adam. And if he gave it to Adam, we are heirs then in that lineage and have that same right and have that same responsibility to name things. So follow me through this, just a little bit of logic in here. We understand that because we name our children, right? It's not like we have our kids in a hospital and then that hospital or that doctor or that whoever, apart from us, says, this is child number 4516789, and his or her name shall be whatever, right? They don't have that right. We as parents have that right. So you guys, as parents, have named your children. I had the right to name the four children that we have. So let me just tell you very briefly, and there's a story behind each, and I just don't have time to go into it, but Noah, Noah was born in 2004, and, and his name actually means rest, but it's also a calling out that Noah was a man of righteousness in the midst of a terrible time, and he stood and made a refuge for anyone that would have entered. So we named him that, and I could tell you a story about that. Kaylee was born in 2006. Kaylee means laurel or crown. She is our princess. We had, already have, we had already had a boy and now we had a girl and we felt like God was giving us a princess. And then our third child, Ethan. Ethan means strong or steadfast. There's actually um, 
eight or nine mentions of an Ethan in the Bible, uh, and and one of those is uh, Ethan uh, wrote Psalm chapter eighty nine, and I don't have time to read that, um, but he he was one of David's musicians, and it might have been from that psalm that the, name, that the name Ethan took its meaning steadfast because in Psalm 89 it says, it talks about God being steadfast and faithful like five or six times. And Reagan, our fourth, who's four months old, doesn't speak to a political association. And as long as you attend here, I guarantee you, you will never ever know my political association. Fair enough? Reagan means little king. And so we chose it proclaiming that over his life. But let me speak again to the name Ethan because um, we walked through, Emily and I did a very, very, very rough time, not personally, but occupationally, corporately. We had left JFC as, as the youth pastors that we had served when JFC was just a storefront church down on Broadway and County Line. And I was doing that part-time and landscaping part-time. And New Life Church called me and offered me a position to come and be a a college pastor. And we got to see, uh, as a part of that team, a college ministry grow from 300 students to uh, 1,000 or 1,100 students. And I was charged with guys' discipleship and and missions and things like that. And sent sent hundreds of people all over the world. Um, And... And if you are familiar with that church, you know what happened in that church. There was an international scandal um, that surprised everyone on staff, um, but the staff was blamed for having a part or knowing about it, and uh, it really rocked a lot of our relationships. I was getting calls from people that I hadn't talked to in years saying, is this true? How could this possibly be true? We walked through that with camera crews in our parking lot all the time. Um, Whenever I was in a situation and somebody said, hey, what do you do? I had to sheepishly say, I'm a pastor at New Life Church. And I would always get the response of question or doubt or how could you? So we walked through that and then we walked through a season where we had to find a new pastor. And if any of you have ever been a part of church government, uh, even the best churches don't necessarily do that well. And, and when you throw into the mix that you're replacing a senior pastor who pastored a church of 14,000 people, who was on television all the time, uh, who was the leader of a national organization of churches, uh, it's a delicate situation and people's feelings get hurt and you think that the church is going to fracture into multiple uh, divisions. But we made it through that by God's faithfulness and His steadfast love for us. And there was a group of us that were on staff that decided, let's just stay steady and be an example for this congregation to say, look, when it gets difficult, difficult is not a reason to leave. Difficult is a reason to look for God's faithfulness. And so we stayed and we get in a new leader, a new pastor, and everything's looking right. And, and we're thinking this huge ship is finally turning. And then on a normal Sunday in December, I was standing up front praying for people after the service. And after I got done praying with people, I was talking to one of the families that uh, I knew well because I had sent three of their four daughters on missions. 
and I was challenging them and asking them where are they going to go on missions the next summer. And we had our conversations, and I challenged David, the father. I said, hey, you've got four girls that are going to go on missions this summer. When are you going to leave this country? And, and he hemmed and hawed about his, uh, his job and the ability to do that and the cost of sending four girls on missions itself. And we laughed and joked and had a good time, and then we said our goodbyes, and they walked out of the sanctuary down the hallway and I stopped with Emily and, and our two kids at that time we had just had Kaylee and we were talking to a college student and we were standing about by the back wall and of that sanctuary and then we heard gunshots and it was just something that clicked and I took Noah a two-year-old and tucked him under my arm like a football and cut through this massive sanctuary and thought I need to get down and I thought I was going to hide under the chairs and then I thought I can't hide under the chairs with a two-year-old and Emily's running in high heels with a brand new baby and we had to cross the hallway that uh, was connected where bullets were flying and, and we had to make it to another building on that campus and we got stuck there all afternoon. And so you say, why God? How does that happen? And the family that I had just spoken to, I found out later that day that two of their daughters were shot and killed as they were getting into their minivan. And David, the father, was shot and almost died. And we spent the rest of that evening at the hospital with staff and friends and family praying and crying and questioning and saying, relent, God. Relent and show us your faithfulness. And so we walked through that. And there's a lot of times where you kind of slam your fist on the dinner table and say, why are we doing this? God, you're faithful and we're trying our best to serve you, carry your message and draw people into a saving relationship with you. But fast forward now, I can look back on that time and I can say God was faithful and God was steadfast. And though we don't have all of the questions answered at this point, when Ethan was born to us a couple years later in 2009, and we had seen that season go, and New Life Church rose back again out of those ashes, we named Ethan with that name because we were proclaiming that our God is faithful, our God is strong, and our God is steadfast. So we have the ability to proclaim a name, essentially it's a, it's a prophetic utterance. These words that you hear right now, they'll fade. As a professional pastor, speaker, counselor, I know that even when I lock eyes with you across the table, or across an auditorium, I know that my words will fail. They will fade away at a certain point. But the things in life that we name outlive us. Because when I'm gone, and I'm a memory and a photograph, I will have, at least to this point, four kids whose names Emily and I decided upon and proclaimed over their life. And that will outlive me. So when I talk about that we've been given the right and the responsibility to name things, I'm telling you that we've been given the right and responsibility to prophetically utter something 
that will last longer than our current season or possibly even our current life. And so what are some of the things that we can name? We can name our friends. Did you know that? Jesus did it. Jesus took a man named Simon, and we don't necessarily know exactly what Simon was like, but he basically took one look at Simon and said, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you a rock. And where you have been maybe unsteady, maybe emotionally up and down, we don't know if this was a big burly guy that was kind of knocking guys over on his way. Uh, we know that uh, some of these guys wanted to call lightning down from heaven at one point. And so um, there, he took a guy named Simon and he said, I'm going to call you rock and this is what I'm going to do with you. I'm on this rock. I'm going to establish church. And so we fast forward and we find Peter actually denying Christ three times at, at the time where Jesus most needed somebody to stand with him. But was it the fact that maybe Peter looked back after the ascension and said, you know what, that man, that God man called me a rock. And so it must mean that the people in my life need me to be a rock. And so I think Simon left Simon in the dust and became Peter and walked in that calling and in that anointing. See, we can do that with our friends. You might have a friend that comes and just complains all the time. Everything is this, everything is that. It's never their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. It's their boss, it's their co-workers, it's their mother-in-law, it's their father-in-law, it's their spouse, it's their this, it's their that. It's their bank because of they don't have a financial problem. Their bank has a financial problem, right? You can, what, what I'm telling you right now, according to Scripture, the word that we live by, is that you could start changing that person's name and speaking a prophetic utterance over their life, and I guarantee you, you'll watch them change. I guarantee it. If you have any influence over them, now, here's the deal. You might start saying that, and they might leave. They might. They might not accept that over their, over their life, but you can still pray for them. And then every time you see them, you can call them a rock. You can call them an Ethan. You can call them a Reagan, a little king. You can call them a Kaylee, a crown or a princess. You can call them a Noah, which means rest or righteousness in the midst of unfaithfulness. You have names that are coming to your mind, and I'll leave it at that. You know that we have the ability to name our situations and name our seasons in life. Whatever you're going through right now, you might have already named it. You might have already said how bad this season or this situation in life is. You've said it to a friend, you've said it to a spouse, you've said it to yourself driving in the car. You want this season of life to just pass because you've proclaimed it as something that you think that it is, but you haven't lined it up with Scripture. And you know what? If we've, given the, if we've been given the right and the responsibility to name things, then God leaves it at that. He might whisper to you, I'm faithful and I'm true and I, I don't think that's right. Because I think he can take any season or any situation, no matter how bad it is, no matter how mundane it is, 
and he can breathe over that, he spoke and everything came into existence. Right? He created the fact that you bury a seed in dark, muddy soil. And if you give it enough sunlight and enough water, all of a sudden, out of that murkiness comes forth a flower or a tree or a bush. So no matter if your season looks dark and murky right now, I'm telling you, proclaim it as something that you want it to be. Maybe you might have to get with somebody else and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. Can you just help me? Throw out some adjectives here. <laughs> if you're not a word person, get with somebody that is. If you're not a spirit person, get with somebody that is. If you're not a worshiper, get with somebody that is. Maybe it'll take you a couple of songs of worship for God to kind of whisper to you, this is what I wanted you to call it. Right? But this is what I wanted to get to today. And that, that is this. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, one more time. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam has just finished naming all of the animals. God watched him do it. We don't know if God took him kind of on a safari and said, hey, come on over here and just right around this corner you'll see this other animal. What are you going to call that? Or if they lined up and he just monotonously kind of named the animals. I, I, I lean towards the fact because I've been on multiple safaris before in different countries that our God is so creative. I, I, I read the Bible and I think, I bet this is what it was like. Because these are real people interacting with a real God, and our God is a creative God. So I imagine it more of like the Garden of Eden safari, and God surprises him with where these animals live and their habitats. And so he's used to this, naming things, calling them out, and whatever he calls them, that is what they are. And God accepts that. And then the next thing that happens is God creates woman, brings her to Adam, and Adam does what? Names her. Calls out, this is woman. Isha. This is woman. She has been taken from man, and that is what she shall be called. So let's put verse 23 back up on the screen, and I want you to look at it as I ask you this question. Who's Adam speaking to? Go ahead. Who's Adam speaking to? He's speaking to God. He's not speaking to this brand new cre creation, to this brand new creature. And he's not speaking to the animals because that's already been established that none of those animals are suitable for him as a friend or communicator. So he's speaking to God. So as I'm studying this, all of a sudden that jumped off of the page. Adam is speaking to God about his bride his wife, and he names her woman and tells God, this is what she shall be called. And God says, okay. So, follow me in this. We as husbands have the ability to speak to God on behalf of our wife. We tell God who and what she is. 
what? If Adam did this, and he has the right and the responsibility to name things, and then God brings someone into his life, and he looks at her, and then looks at God, and says, she's going to be called woman. That responsibility has never been taken away from us either. And so we, men of Lakewood, right now, we have the ability to speak to God on behalf of our wife and call forth out that which she is. So all of those things that we see because we are closely connected with her, we see her doubts, we see her struggles, we see those things that she would call her inadequacies, we see her questions, we take those things, which is all wrapped up into her identity, we go to God. We say, God, this is what I call forth out of her. She is beautiful. She is a woman of God. She is strong. She is courageous. She has all that she needs to make it through this season of life. Even when she questions her skills and her talents and her abilities, God, I proclaim to you this, and I proclaim to you that. Is that not amazing that we can do that? But you know what? Just quickly, and I don't have time to go into this, that was the first time that Adam referred to himself as a man. So uh, let me say this. Men, you are never more of a man than when you are interceding for your wife. Because when you set yourself in a place where you are speaking to God on behalf of those whom he has entrusted to you, you are establishing your identity with our Heavenly Father. So when we think that our identity is established in our occupation, or are in, in our title, or in what we do or what we don't do, or what we like or what we dislike, we're trying and striving to become a man of God. But when we sit at the feet of our Heavenly Father and intercede and proclaim and name those that we are responsible for, you are never, ever going to be more of a man than in that moment. Praise God for that, right? So, let me just throw in something here that I didn't even get to last night. I'm, I'm going to read to you um, out of Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says this, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So, whose faith? Friends, the 
four guys that carried a guy on a mat who couldn't get into the presence of God, who couldn't get into the physical presence of Jesus. Four men pick him up on a stretcher and carry him to where Jesus is. But it's so crowded that they can't get in. There's not even room at the door to kind of stand and wait. Did that stop them? No. They tore the roof off of the place. Roof-tearing faith. Not for themselves, but for a friend. So, let's rewind everything that I've said and go back to that one verse about the strong man. Here's a man, paralytic, that's bound up. The enemy has stolen something from him. His friends recognize that and decide, this isn't what is meant to be, so I'm going to do something about it. We are going to do something about it. We're going to loose this man back into the promises of God for his life. And so they get him out of a situation, out of a position of comfort. Maybe he's used to laying around. Maybe he's used to begging. Maybe he's used to kind of hiding away in his own house. This is not a society that looked on those who were injured or sick with any favor. So those four men did what they could do. And in their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he acted. So for those of us who've come here today and we feel maybe a little bit paralytic, we feel like something's gone wrong and the enemy has stolen something from us, then my question is this, do you have four guys in your life, men, that'll pick you up off of the mat of your own self-pity and take you into the presence of Jesus? Or maybe here's a better question, are you ready to be one of those four men that look to the guys that come in and through the doorway of this church every single week. And they don't have a sign that says, I'm hurting. They don't have a sign that says, I'm lost, I'm confused. But we all know that we have labels put over us. And those labels are devastating to some of us. And we walk in here and we can kind of shake hands and give a hug and we can pretend that it's all right. I bumped into a family that started coming here a little while ago. Everything at that doorway was hi-ho cheerio. It was great. Everything was awesome. Kids are great. Everything's great. Job is great. And then all of a sudden I get a text. And I was like, man, life was not great. But it's easy to pretend not to be paralytic when you're all dressed up and ready to go to church, right? But here, I think, is what God wants from this body. Married or not, single or not, kids or not, this is what I think. I think that God wants those of us who are bound and have things being taken from us to be loosed in Jesus' name. And that's going to take us being a community. That's going to take us being open and honest and vulnerable having coffee with each other, sharing meals with each other, going and doing things with each other to establish relationships so that we know, hey, you're not doing too good. 
Let's get into the presence of Christ right now. Let's worship. Let's pray. Let's do this. So there's a calling out of those who are bound to be loosed, but there's also a calling out of those who want to go invade the camp of the enemy and tie up the strong man and say, uh-uh, not here. Not at Jubilee Fellowship Church and not at the Lakewood campus. Not on our watch will we allow you to do that. And so guess what, buddy? We're going to tie you up. We're going to hold you captive. And you're going to watch us take back everything that you stole from us. Can we do that? So Heavenly Father, I pray right now. And I proclaim over this group of people, over my friends here, God, I speak forth life into their seasons. I name, God, this service. I name that this service would be catalytic. I name that this service would be one that enforces and brings about change. I name this day to be a day of transformation. I name this day to be a day of loosing, a day of unbinding. God, I name this day as a day where the roof comes off of your presence and those of us who have found ourselves to be paralytic, weak, and frail. Maybe we've even named ourselves or our season or our station or our position as weak and frail and paralytic. God, maybe a divorce has caused us to name this season of life as paralytic. But today, right now, God, we proclaim that this be a day where even the sickest among us, even the frailest among us spiritually, would be lowered into your presence to be put at your feet and God, I ask this, that even if, even if those among us who need you the most don't have enough faith for you to heal us, God, I pray that corporately our faith together, that you would look upon us and see our faith, their faith, and proclaim freedom. To tell us like you did that, man, your sins are forgiven. And if that's not good enough, rise up. Take your mat and be on your way. Rise up. Take your mat and be on your way. In the name of Jesus, I proclaim that. I proclaim a new season in your life, a positive season and not a negative season. I proclaim that you have the ability to have healthy relationships. Men, I pray that you have the ability to become intercessors for your spouse and for your children and for the friends in your life. I proclaim that you would name your bosses and your supervisors with positive and life-giving names. I proclaim that you would name your companies and your places of work. I proclaim that you would name your cars <laughs> even instead of starting off your day with something negative and doubting the ability of the physical resources that God has given us. I proclaim that this place would be a place where marriages 
survive, come to life, come back to life, and find health. God, we give you praise, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.